Uh, the scriptural message today is from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, New Hope. It's great to see all of you this afternoon. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Let's go before God. Let's ask him to, to help us as we jump into his word. Our Father, we've gathered here today to sing to you, to sing truths to one another. We've gathered to speak to you. We've gathered to receive from you, Lord, to receive grace, to receive the instruction we need, to receive uh, the, the, the truth that, that we find ourselves in constant need of. More than anything, Lord, we've gathered because we need you. We need you. And so we gather in the wonderful name of your son, Jesus Christ, the name above all names. And we gather in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in our own strength, to offer worship to you and to receive from you. And so we ask that you'd fill us with your spirit so, so that we might receive and believe and respond to what you show us. And we ask that you would show us Jesus Christ. More than anything, Lord, we want to see him in the, the, the pages of Scripture. We want to know him more deeply. We want to believe in him more firmly. So please make that a reality for us this, this afternoon. We ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we came to the end of the story of Joseph and his family. And today we begin the Gospel of John, which is another narrative, and it's all about Jesus Christ from beginning to end. Two, two things you need to know as we jump into this new series. One, we're not going to go all the way through the Gospel of John in one swoop. We're actually going to be in the Gospel of John until the summertime, and then we're going to pull out. We're going to do something different. Then later on at the end of the summer, we'll jump back in, be in there for a few more months. We'll probably go away from it and come back home to John later on a few months after that. So we're going to be kind of coming in and out of this book. It's a long book. And so that's the way we're going to do it. Um, second thing you all need to know, and we all need to keep in mind, is that in the Gospel of John... The story of Joseph and his family hasn't actually ended. It actually continues. The Gospel of John is actually a continuation of the same story that we were studying back at the end of the book of Genesis up until last week. And here's why I say that. Because Jesus Christ, the one who we're going to be looking at week after week, is descended from that very same family line. He is a part of the family of Joseph. In fact, he was descended directly from Joseph's older brother, Judah. 
Back in Genesis chapter 12, God makes a promise to Abraham. He tells Abraham that he's going to give Abraham a son, a seed, and in that son he's going to bless the nations, he's going to bless the world. Abraham has a son, his name is Isaac. Isaac has a son, his name is Jacob. Jacob has a son, his name is Judah, Joseph's older brother. And it's from Judah's line that Jesus Christ comes and is born. And you can read more about that at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, if you'd like to. But there's another reason that this story in John actually continues the story of Joseph. And it's this. The whole narrative of Joseph and his family is meant to point ahead to Jesus Christ. We saw that often as we went through that narrative. Think about it this way. Joseph was rejected and abused by people who should have loved him. And in his life, he points ahead to another man who was rejected and abused by people who should have loved him. He points ahead to a man who, who also would be handed over and imprisoned and left for dead, but would rise again as a ruler, a ruler who would rescue his people, just like Joseph did, but on a much bigger scale. That's who Jesus Christ is. And he is one like Joseph, but better than Joseph. Like Joseph, he would come back to, to offer forgiveness and reconciliation to the people who wronged him so deeply. Yeah, as we saw again and again over the past few months, Joseph was a rejected, risen rescuer. But Jesus is the greater Joseph. He's the one that Joseph was pointing ahead to all along. As one has famously said, Jesus is the true and better Joseph. So you see, the story just continues. In fact, this is all part of God's big storyline, God's story of how he's bringing rescue and he's bringing reconciliation to a ruined world. We, we see these faint pictures of rescue. We see these faint pictures of, of God bringing reconciliation all throughout the Old Testament in that, in that first half of the Bible, but it all points to the final rescue, the final reconciliation that Jesus Christ is bringing. The Gospel of John is all about us seeing that, coming face to face with Jesus Christ, the true rescuer, the true reconciler, the true ruler. John knows that. The author knows. In fact, he says in John 20, verse 31, this is kind of a purpose statement for this whole gospel. He says, these are written so that you may believe. Everything in this book is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, that's John, the author's goal. That, that you and I might believe in Jesus. That we might believe that he's the Christ. That means he's the chosen, anointed Messiah, Savior of the world. That we would believe that. And that we would also believe that he's the Son of God himself. And, and here's what's at stake. John tells us, by believing, you will have life in his name. That's John's desire for us. That's God's desire for us as we enter into this book as a church. If you're, if you're um, thinking, well, you know, I, I'm not sure I believe that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Son of God. 
then this is the right book for you to read. Maybe you're thinking, I don't, I don't know that it really matters whether Jesus is in fact the Christ, the Son of God. Why does it matter? After all, other people have claimed to be God before. Other people have claimed to be saviors before. And all those people, there's tons of them through history. They've all been dismissed. They're all the butt of jokes. Many of them have just been forgotten. Cult leaders come and they go. But not this one. Not Jesus. In fact, no one, is, is, no one has had more of an impact on history than he has. No one is remembered and honored and worshipped as widely as he is. For that and other reasons, the question of who Jesus really is is a vital question for each of us. In fact, you might say it's the central question of life. Who is he? John wants to answer that question for us. Or maybe you're here and you you do believe that Jesus is the Christ and he is the Son of God. Well, John is the right book for you as well. It's written for those who have believed in Jesus and for those who haven't also. Because even if you would say, I have already believed that Jesus is the Son of God, I would ask you, do you always believe that? Like day to day, is there this constant trust and faith in your heart? This, This resilient, just fixed Faith in Jesus that does not go up or down. You you always believe in him? I don't. My faith wanes. It, it, It wanes pretty violently at times. I think we all have to admit that even if we would claim to be, to have believed in Jesus and we're following Jesus as God, as Savior, Nevertheless, we'd have to admit that there's often a gap between what we confess to believe, what we sing about. There's a gap between that and how we functionally live and what we functionally seem to believe. In other words, we don't always live as if we believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, in whom we have life. And so for for those of you who find yourselves there, where there's often this gap between what you claim to believe and what you're functionally believing day to day to day, the Apostle John is interested in closing that gap. God is interested in closing that gap. So that the way we live day to day will line up with what we confess with our mouths to be true and the songs that we sing, so that when we sing, what a wonderful name, he is in fact the Lamb of God, we will then live in such a way that reflects that truth. Today, our goal is just to introduce, it's just to begin thinking about two questions. One, who is John, the author of this book, who is he? And two, who is Jesus, more importantly? Who is Jesus, the main focus of this book, right? So first question, who is John? Um, who wrote this thing? Um, John is the author, and he's also, as we're going to find, a main character in this whole narrative of the Gospel of John. He's an apostle, which means he's a messenger of God that was chosen specifically by Christ. Jesus chose him to follow him and be his disciple. And later on, he, he, he commissioned him to be an apostle, a messenger by the way, this is not the, the John who wrote this book is not the same John that shows up in verse 6 here. In verse 6, it says there was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's another John. I know it's confusing. 
That's John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. We're going to see, we're going to learn about him next week. We're not even going to really talk about him at all today. The John who wrote this book doesn't actually name himself. He doesn't use his name in any of these chapters. He refers to himself this way. He refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Which is a wonderful way to refer to yourself, right? If you are, in fact, a follower of Jesus, and you can take that name, you can use that name. You can sign that way if you'd like. The one that Jesus loved. John was perhaps Jesus' best friend of all of his disciples. It seems like they had an especially close relationship. In fact, when Jesus was dying on the cross, he looks down at John and no one else. He looks at John and he says, um, he says, John, you're now entrusted with the task of taking care of my mother, Mary. He says to Mary, Mary, look, this is your son from now on. He looks at John, he says, John, this is your mother from now on. I'm entrusting her to you. There's a deep and close relationship, intimate relationship between John and Jesus. But John also, he has some other names. Jesus gave him the nickname, Son of Thunder, which sounds kind of cool, right? Son of Thunder. Actually, John and James, his brother, were both called Sons of Thunder, which sounds kind of like an 80s TV show to me for some reason. I don't know. But he named them that because these two guys, they, they, they brought a certain energy to the group. They, they were kind of raucous. Uh, they, 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 they were kind of vengeful. They were kind of impulsive. They, they sometimes were angry. He says, you guys are you're like sons of thunder. But eventually, John goes from being known as the son of thunder to later on in church history, he's often referred to as the apostle of love. Because he talks so often about love. He wrote three other books of the Bible, three other epistles, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and then he wrote the book of Revelation as well. And especially in 1, 2, and 3 John, he talks a lot about love. I think he repeats that term love um, over 80 times over the course of those books. He went from being this thunderous, angry, at times violent fellow to becoming an apostle that was marked by love. In, in a sense, you might say he became more like his best friend. Became more like Jesus. But the point of this book is not for John to present himself to us. The point of this book is for John to present Jesus. So, second question, and more importantly, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? John's going to tell us. He starts out at the very outset of this chapter by taking us right into the deep end. He's not afraid to confuse us with, with some theological truths here. Because I think part of the reason for this is that John, most of the time, was confused himself. And you'll see this as you read the gospel. He, along with the other disciples, were often just completely clueless. It took him a full three years, if not more, to come to fully understand who Jesus was. But John doesn't want us to take three years to figure out who Jesus was. So he takes us right into the deep end. He says, here's who Jesus is. This is going to blow you away. This is going to confuse you. But I'm going to tell you this anyway. And if you read through the rest of my gospel, it'll start to make more sense. So he doesn't ease us into it. He doesn't start with the nativity scene. He doesn't start with Mary. He goes way back. John goes to the beginning, to before the universe existed. And he says these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
John is taking us all the way back to the start. In fact, he's taking us back to the very first sentence of the Bible. If we go back to the beginning of the Bible and we read the first sentence of Genesis chapter 1, here's what we read there. Keep in mind what we just read from John. Listen to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Do do you hear the echoes of Genesis in what John writes? These terms like, in the beginning... The the, the reference again and again to light coming into darkness. The continual references to creation. It's all intentional. John is intentionally bringing us back to the beginning. He's saying this very same God that you read about in the opening pages of this Bible is the very same God that I'm telling you about now. but now we call him Jesus. John, in fact, calls him the Word, which confuses matters all the more. He doesn't even use the name Jesus. It's the Word. And we'll get to to why he uses that term, but that's next week, too. We're not even going to talk about that today. We want to see today is a, a few other things, things that we need to see first, really, about Jesus. One of them is this. Jesus is eternal, He he was present before creation. That's what John tells us in verses 1 and 2. He is the pre-existing Jesus. That that means that he was not created. In fact, he was always with God, John says. He was in fellowship with God. The term, it it could be phrased this way. He wasn't just with God. He was facing toward God in fellowship, open community with God before the universe was created. Athanasius, who was a a bishop, a a theologian in the fourth century, um, uh, African, African theologian bishop, he said these words. I think we got this on a slide. I think along with a, a picture of a, Athanasius, there, good-looking fellow. Athanasius said these words, there was never, there never was when he was not. It's such a simple sentence, but every time I try to read it, I screw it up. Because it's kind of, it's, 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 it doesn't read intuitively, right? There never was when he was not. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. Athanasius was um, at the head of a pack of, of people who were really pushing for the church to realize and accept this truth back in the 4th century. It was a point of contention in the 4th century church. In fact, there was a council called the Council of Nicaea. Some of you may have heard of this. Council called in Nicaea, it's present-day Turkey. This council of church leaders came together to hammer out this truth. Did Jesus always exist, or was he created by God? Foundational truth. And Athanasius, well, Athanasius read the Gospel of John, and he read the rest of the Bible, and he said, it's clear right here. He's the pre-existing, eternal Jesus. Others, a small group of others, argued against that. A a guy by the name of Arius in particular, Arius um, came to the conclusion, one reason, one way or another, 
that Jesus was not, in fact, always existing, that Jesus was, in fact, created by God. He was a creature just like we are. Other leaders in the church saw that this was, this was a dangerous, dangerous false teaching. It was a dangerous heresy, and it undermined, really, the gospel. So it led to this council. At the end of this council, um, it came to a peaceful end, and the church has been affirming for over 1,600 years now that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. During that council, there were points at which it was not so peaceful. In fact, legend holds it, and it's, um, we can't be completely sure if this really happened, but legend holds that another bishop by the name of St. Nicholas, and, and he is in fact that St. Nicholas, the one that we've all heard about, that St. Nicholas was so angry at Arius and Arius' false teaching that at one point, St. Nick got up and smacked, maybe even punched Arius in the face not, I'm not in any way endorsing such behavior. I'm just saying that St. Nick, it seems that before, before he jollied up and got a, a little <laughs> calmer and benevolent in his old age, he, he, was, he was something of a, a son of thunder himself, it seems. In any case, in any case, since that point, the church has continually affirmed always Jesus is the pre-existing Son of God. Not only that, look, it says, this means, by the way, this means that Jesus, and why does this matter so much? Here's why it matters so much, because it tells us that Jesus is not a part of creation. He is not bound by creation. He is not bound by time. He existed before time. That means that Jesus is outside of history and above history, but he enters history. And that's what John is talking about in verse 9, where he says, He was coming into the world. The Word was with God and was God and existed before time, but He was coming into, breaking into human created history. Motivated to do such a thing by love for His creation. At the end of verse 1, John drops this bomb so he says, not only did Jesus exist before time, not only did he exist with God, he is in fact God. And that's what John is claiming here, that Jesus is fully divine. And this is not an isolated claim. The Bible makes this claim in several other places. In Colossians 1, 19, for instance, it says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That means in Jesus, fully God. And, and, John, and God, Jesus himself says it even more clearly. In this very gospel, chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. Just so there's no confusion, he and I are one. I am fully God. And this, of course, points to this mind-blowing reality of the Trinity. There's this mind-blowing truth that none of us can really wrap our heads around. We, it doesn't, we can't wrap it up neatly or understandably. It's not meant to frustrate us. It's meant to awe us. It's meant to leave us in a place of worship. The doctrine of the Trinity tells us that God is not three gods. He is one God who exists eternally in three different persons, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, eternally existing in community together. He is not one God in three different forms, he was once a father, then he becomes a son, and sometimes he becomes a spirit, and then he shapeshifts back into the father. It's not that at all. That's another heresy. It took other councils to figure that one out. But he is one God in three persons, and that should move us to awe, to humility, 
because we can't fully understand, but we can worship. Jesus, will see, speaks of the Father and the Spirit as separate persons, but one eternal creator, God. I said we're going to look at what this, what this term, uh, Jesus as the Word, means next time, but for now I just want us to think about this. When God comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ, God is speaking to us truthfully. He is speaking to us truthfully in and through Jesus. Jesus is the accurate trustworthy revelation of Jesus, of God. Jesus is the trustworthy, accurate revelation of God to us. Maybe, maybe to you, God is an abstract concept. It's hard to really capture in your mind, what is God? Is he a force? Is he a power? Is it the, what is, what is he? The Bible says if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus Christ. Full revelation of him right there. Look at Jesus. In John 14, verse 9, Jesus, again, he puts it much more plainly than I could. He says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You know, we don't get a description anywhere in the Bible about what Jesus actually looked like. Ever notice that? It seems that God doesn't really think that's all important, very important for us to know. If you were to close your eyes and picture what Jesus looks like, I wonder what kind of images would come to mind and where those images come from. Maybe they come from, maybe they come from just images that we saw growing up in our in like church artwork or Christian bookstores. I know that um, we have a lot of these uh, storybook Bibles at home. For some reason, we've, we've collected so many of them at home. And, and one of them, in fact, I bought at a used bookstore, and it's an old one. It's a storybook Bible that came out before I was born. Um, and there, there's pictures uh, throughout it of, of, of Jesus. And I guess it's Jesus, but he, he, doesn't, look, he doesn't look very Middle Eastern. Um, he looks kind of, kind of, he looks like he, he, like he, he, he kind of grew up in the 1960s. He has very blonde hair. He has a beautiful beard. It's lovely. And, and he's, just, he's very fit. He's a very fit Jesus. And that image, for some reason, I saw it. And I, I, when I bought this book for my kids, I looked at it and I thought, this image looks so familiar to me for some reason. Like, I've been seeing pictures like this of Jesus my whole life, it seems. And it's probably, it looks nothing. Like, in fact, my kids, we were sitting down. I forget how, who, which, one of, which one of them was that said this, but we were sitting down to read the Bible together. And one of my kids said, which Bible are we going to use? And one of them said, can we use the, the white Jesus Bible? They said, we use the white Jesus. And, and, <laughs> yeah. He was probably not light-skinned. He it was very unlikely that he had blue eyes. But the fact is we have very little in terms of a physical depiction of him. Here's what God wants us to know about Jesus. He gives us lots of cultural context. We can put some clues together to figure out what he probably looked like. But here's what God really wants us to know. He is God. The exact expression and a revelation of God. And then John goes beyond that. And he says not only is he God, but you want to know more about who this God is? He is the source of life and the source of light. Look at verses 4 and 5 of John chapter 1. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
At creation, God spoke light into the world. John tells us that Jesus was an integral part of that creation process. That the world was created through Jesus, the Word. At creation, Jesus was the one who brought life and light into a void, an empty universe. So, so in a sense, John is looking back at Genesis here, but he's not just looking back at Genesis. He's, he's also looking at the present and the future. He's, he's not just talking about creation. John here is talking about salvation. He's talking about redemption. Here's what I mean. Not only was Jesus instrumental in creating everything we see, in, in bringing form and life and light to what was one time formless and dark and lifeless, Jesus is the one who also recreates. Jesus is the one who pierces the darkness of a world that has been ruined and cursed by sin. He brings light once again, just as he did at creation. He brings it again to recreate and to renew what was lost and broken, and killed and darkened in the fall of humankind. He brings light once again. He brings new life to a world that's been bound up by death. As we sit in a place and time, in a, in, a, in a culture, in a place in history that's marked by all kinds of darkness, we have to remember that Jesus is still the source of light. And Jesus is still piercing even present darkness with light. I want to read this quote from a pastor by the name of Ray Ortland. You've heard me quote him before, maybe. He says, it's a dark day, but God has not forsaken us. And that is what the Bible is saying to us here. But of course, we all know that it's a dark day, don't we? The darkness is obvious on all sides. The darkness of lies, the darkness of incompetence, the darkness of confusion, of cowardice, boredom, betrayal, sarcasm, sarcasm, selfishness, ego, ingratitude, loneliness, lust, broken promises, racial injustice, merciless judgments. The darkness is everywhere. When governments oppress their people, it's a dark day. When teachers mislead and exploit their students, it's a dark day. When parents abuse their children and preachers conceal hypocrisy and advertisers deceive the public and scholars falsify their research and bullies pick on the weak and de demonic powers move unseen but influential, and sinners die without an eternal hope. It's a dark, dark day. But you knew that already. End quote. We live with, a, with this oppressive, burdening reality that there's darkness all around us. We don't need to be reminded of that. But here's what we do need to be reminded of. That God has not forsaken his creation. And he has not forsaken us. In fact, he has promised to defeat darkness. In Jesus, God has once again brought light. He's bringing shape to the dark and formless. He is recreating the world. The Jesus who was there before it all will one day redeem and renew it all. 
we sometimes think of, at least I do, sometimes think of light and darkness when I read about it, like in the Bible or in literature, I think of light and darkness as these opposing forces. It's not quite accurate. Light and darkness are not equal in opposing forces. Darkness is the absence of light. So that wherever there is darkness, when light shines, what happens? The darkness vacates. The darkness is gone. It vanishes. There's no contest, in a sense, between light and dark. Wherever there is light, it will always, always, always defeat darkness. All you have to do is walk into a dark room and flick on the light, and you'll see what happens. The darkness disappears. It's no contest. And so it is. So it is with the world. Darkness is everywhere. But when Jesus shows up, when he shows up to live and to die and to resurrect and to one day come again, with every piercing of light, darkness is chased away. When I'm um, when we're traveling and we sleep in a hotel, I always like to draw all those layers of curtains closed so it's like perfectly, completely dark in the hotel room. I find that you can sleep so much, so much more peacefully when, when, when the room is completely black. In the morning, we wake up. My kids, we all share a hotel room usually, and um, wake up and kids are dead asleep and I walk over and I pull open those curtains and the kids all like scream and they kick and they're like, no, no, why, why? The flood rushes in so quick. You can't even say it rushes in. It's just immediately the room has changed. The darkness is gone. The light has chased it away. And now there's light and there's life in the room as everyone wakes up and complains. Darkness will not overcome because this is a Jesus whom we worship. The Jesus we worship is not scared or overwhelmed by evil. He sees the evil all around us just like we do, but he's not overcome or overwhelmed by it. He overwhelms and overcomes the darkness. And how does he do it? This is the most incredible part of the story. He does it through death on a cross. In this moment where it looks like death has completely, it looks like darkness has completely won the day, Jesus, the Son of God, hangs dying. The sky itself went dark. But little did the enemy know that in that very moment, death was being defeated. Darkness was being swallowed up by light. And on the third day, less than three days after that, Jesus would emerge from a dark tomb into the brightness of day and remind us that light and life will always prevail. And what does Jesus say? He says to us when he emerges from that tomb, he can say to us, just like, he can say to his enemies, just like Joseph said to his brothers, you meant this cross and this crucifixion and this arrest, you meant this all against me for evil, but God meant it for good so that the lives of many people would be saved. He will one day return to rule and death and darkness will be finally, once and for all, banished from creation. Verse five, the darkness could not overcome him It could not seize and stop him. As we sang today, the grave could not hold him. 
And it's funny that John here is talking about a Jesus who was crucified, he was murdered, but John knew better than to think that he continued to be dead. He knows that darkness could not overcome him. I want you to think about this as as we close. Every time you crack open a Bible and you start to read, or every time someone starts talking to you about the gospel, or you start talking to them about the gospel, and start reminding them of some truths, every time we gather here and someone opens up the Bible and preaches from it, every time any of those, those things happen, light is piercing darkness. Light is shining. And every time that happens, darkness tries to overcome. There's an attempt made. And that looks different ways. Maybe when you sit down to read your Bible, darkness tries to overcome in all kinds of ways. Whether it's through distraction or it's sinful thoughts in your own heart. Or it's doubt creeping up in your mind. All kinds of things can happen. When we gather here, all kinds of things can get in the way. All kinds of things darkness can use to try to overcome the light of the gospel that's being preached. There's always a battle. Always a battle. As we walk through the Gospel of John over the past, over the, the next months, I want us to think in those terms. Every time we come to this book, the, the Gospel light is shining. The Gospel light is shining. The eternal Creator God is revealing Himself to us. He's the God who existed before time. He created the world, and yet this very same God in Jesus Christ, he cares deeply and personally for you. Jesus is not just eternal creator. He's loving Savior. And and when, when we say that Jesus pierces the darkness, I want you to think about it personally in this sense. He is, Jesus shines light into your darkness. The darkness of your own heart, the sins, the shame, the brokenness, the guilt. Every time you come into contact with God and his word, whether it's here or wherever else it happens, Jesus Christ is is shining light into the darkness that is in your own heart. His purpose is not just to reveal the shame and the brokenness that's going on in there. His purpose is to reveal it. And to heal it, to recreate, to transform and renew. That's his desire. He says, I'm the light of the world, he says. If you come to me, what are you going to find? You're going to find new life. You're going to find renewal. You're going to find forgiveness. You're going to find real life. Jesus shines light into your heart, not to shame you, but to reveal the darkness of what's going on there. and to rid you of that darkness. It's that kind of dynamic we read about in, in Psalm 139 where the, the psalmist, he prays, he says, Lord, Lord, show me if there's any evil way, any wicked way in me. And then after you show me, you shine a light on it, then lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me out of that darkness as into something better. That's, that's what God does. That's what light does. It it reveals the problem. It reveals the brokenness, the shame, the guilt, 
the sin, but also provides a way out and away from that into the way everlasting. But that process is very uncomfortable. It's not easy. In fact, many, when the light starts to shine on your heart to, to show you the shame and the brokenness and the guilt and the sin that's in there, many of us will just want to get away from the light altogether. Say, no, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't want to, I don't want to see that. Jesus addresses this. In John 3, verse 20, he says, everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and he does not come to the light. Why? Why would someone who's doing wicked things hate the light and not come to the light? Because he doesn't want his works to be exposed. But we can trust this Jesus. With whatever wickedness we have bound up in our hearts, we can come to him and say, expose it, because I know that you don't expose it to shame me to embarrass me and to break me. You expose it so that you will then lead me in the way everlasting. You expose it in order to renew and heal me. So the question again, are you willing to have the darkness in your heart exposed so the life and the light that Jesus has for you can flood in? This is why we're going through the book of John. We want to see who Jesus is. We want, we want him to expose what's going on in here. Ultimately, so that, as John says, we may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, we may have life in his name. I invite you to pray with me. Lord Jesus, it's because you are the eternal creator God that we know that we can, we can trust in your power, that you actually do have the power to recreate and renew. It's because you are the Savior God who died in our place, we know we can trust you. We can trust you to handle us with care, to expose our sins and the darkness of what's going on in our hearts, but to do it in love, to rescue us from it. Lord, we pray that, that we would be a church uh, uh, filled with people who believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we would have life. Lead us through your word. Teach us. Show us who you really are. We ask it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.